All right, guys, my name is Jordan. Uh, I am teaching and equipping pastor here, and I still distinctly remember the first time that I encountered Romans 8. So I had read Romans 8 before, but I think I had no clue what was going on. And as a freshman in college, I remember hearing Mark Arendt preach on Romans 8, 1, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I remember being just stunned at that reality. I had, I had spent my life feeling condemned and feeling frustrated at my failures and, and frustrated that I couldn't be someone better than who I was. And I remember Mark looking at the audience and saying, if you were in Christ, God is proud of you like a dad. And it, I, I, from that point on, my life has not been the same. I remember thinking shortly after that, like I've got to give my life to telling people about that news. And so in that moment, I intuitively understood that good news that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the thing that Drew talked about last week. And and actually, have you had a moment like that? Like, it, it doesn't have to be exactly like that, but have you had a moment where the lack of condemnation in Christ has struck you to your core and your life couldn't be, couldn't be the same as a result of what you just heard? Or have you just kind of done the Christian things throughout your life, put on some Christian morality, but have you ever had that moment where the word of God stunned you with the beauty of this message that he was communicating to you? And, and it stunned me, but, but here's what happened to me in Romans 8 is we continued on through Romans 8 and we got to this middle section that I'm about to teach today that was about killing sin and it was about the spirit and the flesh and how if you live in the flesh, you'll die. And I was a little freaked out by that. And then we kept moving on in Romans 8 and then it got to the part about how nothing can separate you from the love of God when you're in Christ Jesus. And, and so what happened is, is I understood that Romans 8, 1, that there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus was good news. I knew that the end of Romans 8 about how nothing could separate me from the love of God was good news, but the middle felt like bad news to me. This idea that if I lived in the flesh, that, that I would die, or that even though I wasn't condemned, that there was all of this sin in my life that I still had to fight and kill. That just seemed like hard work and not like that good of, a, that good of news. And it wasn't until later on in my life that I realized that actually that middle section is great news too. Because yes, the message of the gospel is that you don't have to be condemned for your sin, that the things that you've done wrong, that you are guilty for, that God will not hold those things against you if you're in Christ. But the message of the gospel is also that you can live a transformed life, that that you don't have to live in those old sins anymore, but you can actually be a different and better person and live a different and better life. And so what Drew talked about last week, if we want to use uh, like theological terminology, is imputed righteousness. So the word imputation or imputed means to assign value to something. So here's what imputed righteousness means is because of Christ, righteousness is assigned to you. The righteousness of Jesus is credited, it's put on you so that you can stand righteous before God. But the reality is, is the righteousness doesn't have to stay only at the identity level, but actually can start to become practiced in your life. It can become practical righteousness. And so this is the logic of the text that we've seen so far is Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain how that can possibly be true. And the explanation of how that can be true is that what we couldn't do by following the rules of God, Jesus perfectly did by living the perfect life. And then he credited us us with that righteousness. But then that that righteousness is lived out in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
and can start to become practical. And so that's what we're talking about today is the presence of the flesh in all of us, but the new presence of the Holy Spirit for those of us who have met Jesus. Now here's the deal is we tend to inevitably break, break the world up into two categories, right? What are the two categories that we tend to break the world up into? Good and evil. There's good people and there's bad people, right? Every movie ever has ever done this. You get 10 minutes in, you know who the good people are, you know who the bad people are. You know the good guys, you know the villains. And, and the reason movies do that is because they're playing on something in the human heart that you have that same tendency to break up the world into good people and bad people. But the thing that's so challenging about that is you inevitably will draw the lines of goodness around where you stand. You'll find a way to work yourself into that good category. So I've actually done surveys on uh, the U of M campus uh, for a class that I was teaching called uh, Theology of the Gospel or Gospel 101. And one of the questions was, are people basically good? And then I would ask the follow-up question of, okay, most people would say, yes, people are basically good. So I would say, okay, are you good? And I never met a single person who said no to that question. No matter how they lived, everyone always finds a way to try and categorize themselves into the good people. And then our culture right now is really playing into that because this is what's happening, is our culture is dividing up into camps. And you find the group of people who agree with you about philosophy or politics or about the world, and you feel good because those people agree with you. And then your morality, your quest for righteousness is based in your ability to shame someone who disagrees with your goodness. And so you are good, the people out there are bad and the way that you demonstrate your goodness to the world is by shaming those people that are bad. And Romans is going to point out the problem with that. But the problem isn't actually the two categories thing. It actually is true that you can divide all human beings up into two categories, but the categories are not good and bad. The categories are flesh and spirit. And here's why. It's because if you tried to break up the world into good and bad people, you wouldn't have anyone left on the good side. What Romans has been arguing is that human beings are universally fallen, we're depraved, we've removed ourselves from the presence of God, we've set ourselves up as enemies of him. And there's this quote from G.K. Chesterton that I love, who was a Christian and an author, and uh, a newspaper wrote to him and said, hey, will you write us an article and answer one simple question for us that a lot of people are asking? And here was the question, what is wrong with the world? And this was Chesterton's answer. It's short and sweet. I probably didn't need to put it on the screens, but I want you to see it. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's the problem with the world? I am. That takes guts to own up to that, but here's what Chesterton understood. He understood Romans and what the argument of Romans has been to this point in Romans 8. And so we can't categorize the world into good and bad people. We have to categorize the world into flesh and spirit. Let me show you this, Romans 8 verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
So it starts out by saying that those who are in the flesh have their minds dominated by the flesh. Now, the way that we use the word mind is a little bit different than the biblical authors use the word mind. So when we hear the word mind, we tend to just think what we think. But actually what mind means in scripture is it includes your mind, your heart, your soul. It's essentially the essence of who you are. So this is the way John Stott talked about what the mind is. It's absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. It's a question of what preoccupies us, of the ambitions which drive us and the concerns which engross us, of how we spend our time and our energies, of what we concentrate on and give ourselves up to. So this is what this is saying, that if your mind is set on the flesh, if you live in the flesh, then the absorbing object of thought, interest, and affection for you is sin. And and that's not unique to some human beings, but all human beings have this flesh nature in us. The flesh can be simply defined as the sin-dominated self, the sin-dominated self. And here's what the flesh leads to, according to Romans 8, is it leads to death. So let me just highlight a couple of the descriptions of the flesh from the text that I just read you. If you're living in the flesh, then you're hostile to God. If you're living in the flesh, then you do not submit to the law of God. If you're living in the flesh, you cannot please God. And ultimately, because of all of those things, your final destiny is death. And in this life, you are in the process of dying both physically and spiritually because the flesh kills you. So I want to point out one of those specifically, the cannot please God. That's actually really fascinating when it's giving a descriptor of the flesh. Because I think typically when we think about flesh, we might think about just kind of brazenly living in sin, just indulging sin in every way, not wanting to have anything to do with God, just living however you want, which yes, that would be the flesh. But there's also a second type of flesh that I think Romans 8 is particularly speaking to, which is a type of flesh that is actually attempting to please God, but is doing it by the wrong means. And inevitably, there's some of you that are watching this right now that that's you. You've identified as a Christian throughout your entire life, but you've never actually experienced life in the spirit. You've been trying to live by your own power and you're living in the flesh. And here's what's true about the flesh is that it can't please God. It's not possible. And your temptation when you're living in a certain way and you're trying to please God, or, or, or maybe it's someone else that you're trying to please. Maybe you're trying to please your parents or you're trying to please your friends or you're trying to please your spouse or you're trying to live up to your own moral standards as an attempt to gain your own righteousness. That's just a stand-in for your attempt to please God. It's all kind of the same stuff going on in your soul. And inevitably what you'll try to do is you'll try to, when you find yourself falling short of your standards or someone else's standards, you'll try to work harder to create that righteousness in yourself. If you can just add some more effort, if you can just get a new technique for transforming yourself, then you'll be okay. But that isn't going to work because the flesh can't please God. All right, so let's say that I walked in this morning to preach and then Isaac walked up to me and he was like, hey, we're switching roles for the day. I'm preaching, you're playing worship music. You've got 10 minutes to figure it out. 
So I grab a guitar. I have no idea how to play the guitar. And I, you know, I'm desperate, all right? I've got 10 minutes to figure this out. The stakes are fairly high, so I'm gonna be working pretty hard. So I'm working hard to try and figure out the guitar. It's clearly not going well. And so Isaac comes over, he gets about a foot from my face. He forgets about social distancing because the moment is just too intense. And he just starts screaming, try harder, strum harder. Is that gonna be effective? Am I gonna be able to play the guitar well? No, it's probably gonna make it worse. Why? Because no matter how hard I try, I have no clue how to play guitar. I'm not gonna be able to figure it out through sheer effort. That's what it's like to live in the flesh and to try to please God. You're unable to please him and you're working really hard, but it's not actually productive in your attempt to please him. So that's one category of human beings, the people who are living in the flesh. But there's a second category, according to scripture, all of us fall into one of these two categories predominantly, and it's the spirit, the category of the spirit. Look back at verse five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now to clarify, what he's talking about here is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So what he's not saying is flesh means kind of body, your physicality. He's not saying that your body is bad and that your spirit or your soul is good. No, he's saying you were completely consumed by the things of the flesh. You were an enemy of God. But then when you meet Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he begins to take over your nature. And in verse five, when it says that we live according to the spirit, there's actually no verb in the Greek in that sentence. So we couldn't translate it that well. And so, so we put live according to the spirit, but, but more literally the translation from the Greek would be those according to spirit. And I love that, right? This is, this is the idea of what you can become in the Holy Spirit is you can become one according to spirit where your life, your motivations, your actions, your behavior, your thoughts is just according to spirit. And this is actually the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is not to, to mildly transform your behavior, to, to add a little bit of morality into your life, to maybe change some of the baseline patterns of your life. The goal of Christianity is to turn you into Christ. That the, the analogy of the body that's in the Bible is that we all are parts of the body, right? And we all play unique parts in the body. What is that body that we are all a part of? It's the body of Christ. And so here's part of the analogy is that when you meet Jesus, he gives you his spirit so that Jesus is walking around on earth through you by the presence of the spirit. And actually Romans 8 uses the Holy Spirit and the spirit of Christ interchangeably. They're one in the same. And so when we live according to spirit, when the Holy Spirit starts to become the, the essence and the means by which we live, we begin to live the way that Jesus would live. And we now are able to live in a way that pleases God. Before when we were in the flesh, we couldn't please God, but now by the Holy Spirit, we can live in a way that honors him. So there's, there's something called um, becoming an instant savant or an instant genius that, that is really rare, 
but I've, I've studied up on a couple cases of this that I think are really interesting. And basically what happens is there's this part of your brain that just unlocks and now you can do things that you used to not be able to do. And there was this specific person in Israel who they, they interviewed him about this experience. And it's also another music analogy. All right. And so he um, used to be able to sit down and maybe play like a couple baseline chords of some popular songs, right? So he didn't really know how to play the piano. He could kind of sit down and play a couple chords. And then one day he was walking through the mall with his friends and he saw a piano and he had this insatiable desire to play the piano. And so he sat down in front of his friends and all of a sudden he just started to play. And his friends were like amazed. And this is, I've actually got a quote that I want to read to you of his experience of this, this moment. So he said, I suddenly realized what the major scale and minor scales were, what their chords were, where to put my fingers in order to play certain parts of the scale. I was instantly able to recognize harmonies of the scales in songs I knew, as well as the ability to play melody by interval recognition. So then he, it says he began to search the internet for information on music theory and to his amazement, most of what they had to teach me, I already knew, which baffled me as to how could I know something I had never studied. What he wasn't able to do before and what he didn't understand before, he now intuitively understood and was able to do. That's a little bit what it's like when you begin to live in the spirit. What you were not able to do before, please God, you now are intuitively able to do by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden you understand things about the world and how you should live that you didn't understand before. And you now want things that you didn't want before. You actually want to obey God. You want to follow him. And that's based on that new presence of the spirit in your life. Now, does it work exactly the same as it did for that person? where you become a Christian and just immediately you know how to play. You just know how to live life perfectly as a Christian. No, clearly not. But that new desire, that new nature in you of the spirit is now your foundational primary nature in Christ. But that nature is in conflict with your old flesh that still lives in you. And so the human nature is this battleground of these two natures, this battleground of the flesh and the spirit. And so here's what's true of your life is your greatest enemy that you're fighting is not someone external to you, but is something that happens inside of you. It's the flesh in you. You are literally in this case, your own worst enemy. But typically what we mean by that expression is that you just did something wrong once, maybe by accident and it happened to negatively affect you. But actually what's true of the flesh is that it's your enemy living in you that is trying to ruin your life if you will give into it. It's, it's, it's like the flesh is in you trying to convince you that medicine is poison and that poison is medicine. It's trying to get you to do everything that ultimately will kill you and to turn away from the things that will heal you in Christ. And so your life as a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, is this battleground between the flesh and the spirit. And verse 12 talks about that battleground. So Romans 8 verse 12. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Okay, so here's what this is saying, is that there's a war going on for your soul and something has to die. Okay, look, look back at it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So either you let sin live in you and you die or you kill sin and you live. Either you kill sin or it kills you. Those are the only two options when it comes to the flesh and sin. And in the word that Paul uses when he talks about killing the flesh means to execute. It means to put someone to death by a sentence. And so this is what it means to come to know Jesus is you now sentence your sin and your flesh as guilty and you begin to put it to death by the power of the spirit and say, I no longer am going to live by that sin. And so the, the Christian life is a perpetual habitual act of putting your sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. But some of you don't realize the danger that sin poses in your life. And so you might be resisting sin. You might know in theory that you shouldn't pursue sin, but you're letting sin hang around in your life. There's greed or there's selfishness or there's pride or there's ambition or there's, there's fear or there's lust that you're letting hang around in your life, that you're okay with that being in your life because you don't realize the harm that it's attempting to cause you. Here's what that's like. It's like those people that try to raise wild animals in their house. <laughs> a tiger is cute when it's a baby, but it grows up and wants to eat you. I heard this story about, and whether this is true or not, I couldn't confirm. I did some Google searching, try to confirm it for you. Whether or not uh, it's true or not, the illustration still stands. I heard a story of a lady who had a snake living in her home with her that she fed daily and got huge. And then at some point it stopped eating and she was nervous about its health. But the reason it stopped eating is because it was sizing her up and was about to try to eat her. Wild animals... You can't tame them. You can't control them because they're trying to kill you. Sin is a wild animal that's trying to kill you. You can't control it. You can't just resist it. You can't just tame it. The only way to control sin is to kill it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the thing about sin is you can't just kill it once. You can't just decide today that you're gonna kill sin and kind of kill it and call it good, but it's something that will come back to your life repeatedly throughout your Christian life. And so the Christian life is a systematic process of putting sin to death in your life. And you need a treatment plan in order to do that. Now, that is a lifetime of following Jesus that you figure that out. We can't figure that out in one sermon. We can't figure that out in one class. That's a whole lifetime process. But there are some ways as a church that we're excited to start addressing some of these things. So we've been working on some equipping ministry as a church that will start unrolling in the fall. And we've developed some marks of a disciple that I'll unpack more at a different time. But, but the marks of a disciple, the, the, the evidences of what people are like who follow Jesus that we want to point out specifically at Salt City is that we are people who know how to be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did. 
And we plan to have some classes and some small groups based on all three of those marks of a disciple. Be with Jesus, learning how to spend time with God and live in his presence, be like Jesus, is what I'm talking about right here. It's primarily learning how to kill sin in your life and to put on the fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And so be looking out for that. We'll be talking more about that. And we'll talk more about what it looks like to put effort into killing sin in your life. But Romans 8 is not actually primarily about the effort that you put into killing sin in your life. It's primarily about what the Holy Spirit does to kill sin in you. So look back at verse 13. It says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So the way that sin dies in your life is this collaboration between you and the spirit. You're the one that puts it to death, but you put sin to death by the power of the spirit. But then Romans 8 continues on to talk primarily about what the spirit does in you, which is a little annoying and a little frustrating for some of us because we want to just know practically, okay, what do I got to do? How do I do this? But the Bible so often won't give that to you. It will talk more about what God has already done for you. And that's what he's going to do here. So what does the Spirit do? How does the Holy Spirit kill sin in your life? Well, it actually starts out first with what he doesn't do. So look at verse 15, the first half. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So in that, he's reminding us of what the flesh was like. Before you met Jesus, when you lived in the flesh, here's what your life was like. It was slavery and it was fear. That even though in theory you could do whatever you want, here's what those desires did. They enslaved you and made you come back for more over and over again because sin would always coerce you and entice you to live in a certain way, but it would never fulfill you. And it left you longing for more. And here's what that life would create, fear. You'd be afraid that you weren't enough, that you wouldn't match up, that you would be judged for the life that you would live. Or maybe in, maybe in that fear, instead of owning up to the ways that you fall short, you became judgmental and started judging other people for the lives they were living so that you could feel better about yourself, but you knew that that was hollow. And that always could be taken away from you so you lived in fear. And sometimes we tend to think that the spirit operates like that that the spirit operates the same way that the flesh does. And so when you come to Christ, that God is coercing you to try to do the things that he wants you to do, even when you don't want to. And, and that, that God is angry with you and he's condemning you and he's judging you and that you need to live in fear because if you live improperly, then maybe he'll abandon you or be against you. But listen, that's not what the spirit of God is like. Think back to Romans 1. That there's there, Romans 8, 1, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you're hearing the voice of condemnation in your life, if you're hearing that voice, if you're in Christ and you're hearing that voice that says, shame on you, that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit convict of sin and want to transform you out of your sin? Yes, but he does it through love, not shame and guilt. And so that voice of condemnation, Satan is the accuser, that's Satan in your flesh. The Holy Spirit is the counselor and the helper. And so what does the Holy Spirit do to kill sin in your life? Look at verse 16. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's what the Spirit does, is that he confirms your adoption into the family of God. So it's not true that God is the father of everyone. So every human being is the offspring of God. We are the creation of God, but God reserves that title of father or Abba daddy uniquely for those who are in Christ. And so when you meet Jesus, he gives you special access to his presence. And not only that, but he gives you an inheritance. So if you become a child, then you then start to receive the inheritance that only Jesus deserved. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in, with him. Guys, we become co-heirs with Christ. We receive the inheritance from God that Jesus earned. And Drew talked about this a little bit last week with that, that whole partial salvation thing, right? What he meant by that is you receive some of your salvation in this moment by receiving the Holy Spirit, but you're anticipating the fullness of salvation coming to you when you meet Jesus face to face in heaven. And he re referred to Ephesians 1.14 that talks about how the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, so another word for guarantee is down payment, that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. So think about like putting a down payment down on a house. So what is that? What are you doing? Well, you're paying a little bit of the money in advance as a way of saying, hey, I'm good for more of this. I'll pay for the rest of it. There's more where that came from. And so what God is doing when he gives you the inheritance of the Holy Spirit is he's saying, hey, I'm good on this. I'm gonna follow through on this salvation. Here's some of my presence. There's more where that came from. But I wanna point something out. When you put a down payment down, you give a in-kind payment. So here's what I mean by that, is if you're going to pay for the house in money, you put your down payment down in money. So you don't show up for your down payment with like 50,000 bananas because you're not gonna pay for your house in bananas. You're gonna pay for it in money. You pay the down payment in the same thing. And so here's what's true. When we think of heaven, we tend to think of all the things that we've got coming our way in heaven, right? The streets of gold or the resurrected body or not being sick anymore, or maybe meeting some of our friends or family members in heaven, which is good. The Bible encourages that. But if that was the primary essence of our inheritance, then our down payment that we would receive would be different. Right? So you would become a Christian and you would get like a block of gold from God and it would say, hey, there's streets of gold coming. Or you become a Christian and your arm would get resurrected and you'd have one arm that's really strong and can't die, right? As a down payment for your resurrected body. But that's not what happens. What happens when you meet Jesus? You get the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the essence of your inheritance is not just the things that you'll get one day as a reward for your obedience, but the essence of your inheritance is God himself. It's getting to live in the presence of your creator who loves you and is the source of all goodness. And that's the thing that makes heaven, heaven. Heaven would be hell without God. And so what the Holy Spirit is, is God giving you himself 
the greatest possible gift that you could imagine, a piece of your inheritance, a piece of his presence so that you can live in his presence now on earth. He is your inheritance. One day you will get God, but by the Holy Spirit, you get God now. Life with him starts now. Okay, so, so to review, to kind of summarize, because that was a lot of content, right? Here's what we said, is that the Holy Spirit can kill sin in you. Okay, how does he do that? By adopting you into the family of God and giving you the ultimate inheritance, God himself. And why does that kill sin? Because when you receive the inheritance of the presence of God, you finally have something better than sin to live for. Sin looks stupid in comparison to getting to live life with God forever. One of the most memorable illustrations I've heard on this was by a, a pastor in our network named Jake Each. And uh, Jake did a little food illustration on this idea and he brought props with him, which usually sermon props, like just not a good idea, but it worked. Jake pulled it off. So he brought three plates of food with him and the plates of food were covered. And he was talking about what sin is like and how to not just resist it, but kill it, right? And he went up to the first plate of food and he took the cover off of it and it was this huge cinnamon roll. And he got down next to it and he was like, this is what sin is like, where it's like, I know I shouldn't eat it. I know it's not good for me, but man, I really want to. And here's what we tend to do when we fight sin is just to stare at the cinnamon roll and go, don't eat the cinnamon roll. Don't eat the cinnamon roll. Don't eat the cinnamon roll. And, and what you start to do over time is you go, oh, well, maybe I can just have like a little taste of the cinnamon roll. And he like licked his finger and, oh, maybe I can just rip off like a little piece of the cinnamon roll, right? When you're just staring at the cinnamon roll, trying to resist it, eventually you're going to give in. And so he's like, here's what you need. You need something to replace the cinnamon roll. And then he dropped the second cover off the food and it was this giant hunk of raw broccoli. And everybody kind of started to laugh and he was like, what? Doesn't this do it for you? Doesn't this make you wanna not eat a cinnamon roll? And he's like, no, this, this broccoli represents what you should do. You know, in theory, this is better for you. This is what you should want, but you don't really want it. And he said, this is where the fight with sin usually happens is you're trying not to eat a cinnamon roll and you're trying to convince yourself to eat some broccoli. But at some point you give in and you eat the cinnamon roll. And what are you glorifying at that point? The cinnamon roll. Or you have really strong willpower and you, you don't eat the cinnamon roll and you eat the broccoli. Well, what are you glorifying at that point? Your willpower, right? So you're either glorifying the sin or you're glorifying the willpower if that's how you fight sin. And he said, instead, you need something that you actually want that's better. And then he dropped the third cover and it was a turkey leg. Now, turkey legs can have a lot of calories. All right, so if you got a problem with that, take it up with him. It wasn't my illustration, but here was his point is he would take a turkey roll over a cinnamon, or not a turkey roll, a turkey leg over a cinnamon roll any day. And here's what he's saying. If sin is what you want, but you know you shouldn't have, if broccoli is what you should do, but you don't really want to do, here's what the turkey leg is. It's everything that God has done for you. The inheritance that he's offered you. And what happens is when you get wrapped up in the inheritance that God has given you, you lose sight of the sin. It's just not that appetizing. It's just not that intriguing anymore. But here's one, one of the difficulties that some of you will have is even though you're in Christ, even though you're learning about the goodness of God, you'll screw up. You'll go back to the cinnamon roll and you'll start to question whether you really are a child of God. But here's the deal, that's not how it works. 
You don't have to kill sin to be qualified to be God's kid. God qualifies you to be his kid and then he starts killing sin in you by the spirit. So your assurance is not based on the work you do, but based on the work that he does. And it argues that in verses 10 and 11. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This is what this is saying. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. And if he can defeat death in Jesus and resurrect Jesus, then he also certainly can defeat death and resurrect you even when it feels like that's not happening. And so you trust his work for you when your work isn't that trustworthy. And so to kind of close out, guys, this is, this is what life of trying to kill sin in the spirit looks like, is through your whole life, sin is like a fire that's been burning down your life. And you've been frantically blowing on it, trying to put it out, trying to extinguish the flames, but you don't have the strength to blow it out. And so actually all that oxygen is doing is making the fire bigger. You're blowing on the flames and they're actually just getting worse and you can't do anything to stop the fire. But when you meet Jesus, he offers you the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Holy Spirit can do is he can come into your life and he can look at those giant flames that have been burning down your life, those flames of sin, and he just blows them out in an instant like a birthday candle. And he says, hey, come on with me, let's rebuild this thing together. And you and him start to rebuild your life by his power. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are able to do what we can't do by ourselves. I confess, God, that my tendency is to try to be good on my own, to try and prove that I'm righteous on my own. I, I don't want to depend on someone else to help me. I want to prove that I can do it. But thank you, God, for showing me time and time again all the ways that I fall short because it creates this dependence, this need for grace and need for your help. And, and so, God, as a church, we confess that our attempts to please you and honor you by ourselves or, or the times that we've given up on trying to, to please you and have just followed the flesh and just done whatever we've, we've wanted to do, we confess those to you and we say, God, help us to come back. Show us our weakness, show us our shortcomings and our failures, but help us not to get stuck in the shame and the guilt of that moment, but to turn from that shame and guilt towards the power of you, Holy Spirit. And the forgiveness and the grace and the righteousness that you offer us in Christ. God, thank you for adopting us into your family. Thanks for giving us a new name and a new life in you. We want to learn how to live in it, God. We love you. Amen.